Friends, would you please stand with me as we read the Lord's Word together. This morning we're reading Colossians uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to the end of the chapter, looking specifically at verses 7 through 9. Again, this is the Lord's Word. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, These are the only fellow workers of the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Amen. Would you please be seated, friends? And again, let's seek the Lord's blessing. Lord, again, we thank you for your word and pray that your blessing be upon this word going forward, that you will minister now to your people. Encourage their hearts, we pray. Encourage us all together in these days in which we live. I ask for an outpouring of your spirit now, that this servant will be faithful and that these, your people, will likewise be faithful to hear. We ask that you would give us ears to hear. Bless now this word and bless the advance of your kingdom and cause the kingdom of Satan injury. O Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to these verses, uh, we have come to the conclusion, the final portion of this letter. And as we come to these verses, as with the closing remarks of other letters, it is easy to pass over them quickly and to think as though the pertinent matters have been dealt with. There is nothing of real import left over which we need concern ourselves. The attitude might be, now that we've come to the end of this book, let's just wrap it up, move on, and get to other things that are weighty and important. A mindset such as this betrays a low view of inspiration. I've heard people say things like, and I'm sure you have as well, that uh, the red letters in your Bible, you know the words that the the publishers put in red, these are the ones that help us know the really important words of the Bible. You have a problem with that, I hope, that I just said that, (laughs) right? We make this distinction between red letters and we make this distinction between black letters. 
The red letters obviously are more important, considering uh, some people consider them as they are supposed to be the words of Jesus, versus the black letters, which are only those words of the prophets or the apostles. It's a ridiculous mindset. It really is. We know, at least I hope we know, that the black letters are just as important as the red letters. Because black or red, they are the words of our God, and that is the doctrine of inspiration. Very important point, you see. The scriptures say, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This word inspired literally means God breathed. It doesn't mean that the Bible is infused with inspirational thoughts. It means God's, God has breathed the actual scriptures so that all scripture, red words, black words, salutations, conclusions, all words in the original autographs are breathed by God who cannot lie. And these words are inerrant and incapable of failing but accomplish always exactly what the Lord has designed for them to do. The writer of Hebrews says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Even these words, verses 7 through 9, the Lord has placed these historically accurate words here, and the church throughout the ages has been blessed by them. The question for us is, why are they here? Admittedly, like Peter said, Paul says some things that are difficult to understand. There are portions of the Bible that are difficult to understand. That's true. But that, just because they're difficult to understand, doesn't mean that they're in error. It means that we have to dig sometimes more deep. I like to say it like this. Sometimes as you're walking through the field of scripture, you bend down and you find a diamond right on the surface. And other times, as you're walking through the field of scripture, you have to dig. And then you find more gems (laughs) and more diamonds there in the scriptures. This is the task of, of the church to study these. And this is what the church has done throughout the ages. This is why commentaries, good solid commentaries from from dead theologians are really still very valuable and helpful to us. I have a commentary about the Reformation, um, men from the Reformation uh, who comment on these passages, and it's just marvelous to hear what the church 500 years ago was, how they were reading and understanding these things so that it keeps us balanced, it keeps us attached to the truth of Scripture So these words are here by God's design. And again, the question is, what do they mean? What does the Spirit of God intend for us to take away from these verses and the rest of this chapter? And by the way, we don't ask the question, and I just caution you, we don't say, what does this mean to me? We ask, what does it mean? Period. And then we apply it to how it applies to my life. What does it mean? And then how does it apply is a very different thing than what does it mean to me, right? You've all sat in Bible studies and someone says, well, what does this mean to you? And it's like reading a Rorschach test, an inkblot test, and you go, where did they see that? I, <laughs> I don't get that at all. So we, we want to be careful with the word of God. I want to start with just a couple of brief observations about the text because this is one of those texts. As I read it and reread it, I look at it and I go, 
what is the Lord saying to the church here? I mean, we look at it historically, but what is the point? So a couple of brief observations. First of all, the church in Colossae needs to know what is going on with the apostle, with Timothy and Epaphras, those who are with the apostle. They need to know. Notice in verses 7, 8, and 9, Paul would write, As to all my affairs, Tychicus will bring you information. And then verse 8, For I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances. In verse 9, they will inform you about the whole situation here. So clearly, as we're looking at this text, the the point is, is that there is information that Paul and his comrades there in Rome need to get to the church in Colossae. Secondly, the apostle is very careful about who he sends to bring the information to them. He gives uh, both Tychicus and Onesimus glowing endorsements. Question is, why? And third, that part of the reason for sending them, these two men with the given information, was for the encouragement of the church. Again, I ask the question, why would they need to be encouraged? What's actually happening to them that these people need to be encouraged in their faith? The point then of this particular passage is to bring encouragement to the church by sending these faithful men with information regarding the Apostle Paul and those with him and their situation. And I ask this question of the text. Why is he sending them? Just a very simple question. Why is he sending them to Colossae? Because apparently, first of all, apparently the church needed to know about what was happening with those who have ministered to them question comes to my mind is why do they and and should they know why do the saints in Colossae need to know what is happening to these men I want you to remember that we considered this last week very briefly that we don't live in a vacuum Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12 24 and following God has so composed the body giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks so that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another and if one member suffers all the members suffer with it if one member is honored all the members rejoice with it now this is not about the church learning about Paul's hobbies his likes or dislikes whether or not he likes nuts and his brownies this is not and I ask this question why why this big emphasis on they need to know our situation, they need to understand our circumstances? Is it just uh, wild speculation? Hey, I'm just curious. Who does Paul think is going to win the gladiator, uh, gladiator races, right? Uh, is, is it this kind of information that is at stake? Is this what Paul wants them to know? But I don't believe this is at all. And, and, and two... Um, as I'm looking at this text, commentators, they didn't even commentate on whether or not what this information was. So you, you draw back and you say, what, what is the scenario of, of Colossians here? We've got to remember that the Christians in the Lycus Valley have never met the Apostle Paul. The church was started by Epaphras who Paul would say in in chapter 1, verse 7, our beloved fellow bondservant who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Paul himself is imprisoned in Rome. 
The year is about 60 AD. He has already had three missionary journeys, and it was after this third missionary journey that he was arrested. And these are the kinds of things they said about Paul, and you could read this in Acts 21, 28, and Acts 24, 5. Listen to what they said or were saying about Paul. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place that is the temple. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. This is what they're saying about about Paul. Again, in Acts 24, an attorney named Tertullus said this, We have found this man, again speaking about Paul, we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and, and, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. This is what has been said about Paul. This is why he's under arrest. This is why he's been imprisoned. The Jews clearly do not like Paul. They call him names. They falsely accuse him, all, uh, all to get him to stop, to intimidate him, thinking perhaps that by doing these things, they are rendering service to God. This is his situation. Paul says earlier in this very letter, and we've preached over these things, he says this in in chapter 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And again, in chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So Paul, imprisoned, he's been accused of being anti-Jew, anti-Moses, anti-law, anti-temple. This guy's stirring up the world. He's a real pest. And he's locked away in prison in Rome in about 60 AD. And from prison, Paul would say that he is in a battle and he continues to fight for them, to fight false teachers who would undermine the gospel and shipwreck the faith of these dear people. You remember who these false teachers were? Scholars believe that these false teachers were peddling an extreme form of Judaism and an early stage of Gnosticism with its teaching centering around ceremonies, asceticism, angel worship, the the, um, deprecation of Christ, centering on secret knowledge, reliance on human wisdom and traditions. In other words, if we were to summarize the teachings of the false teachers... They would instruct people to have less confidence in Jesus Christ and more confidence in the works of your hands. Just the opposite of what the Apostle Paul would say. He would write in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So why is Paul suffering? And again, this is where I think the knowledge that Paul is saying, you need to inform them about my my situation, my circumstances. No one is interested in in what Paul likes or dislikes. This is our situation. These are our circumstances. This is why I'm in prison. This is why I haven't been able to come to you. These are the things that we are being confronted by that you need to understand. Again, he's suffering because he's a faithful preacher of the gospel. He has written faithfully concerning Jesus Christ. He opposes the error of the Jews and of these Jewish occultic of this Jewish occultic hybrid, those who would take the law 
and, and, and say that it is the means to eternal blessing. Paul would say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and you need to look at Jesus Christ alone, who alone is sufficient to save us. And this is why the apostle was imprisoned. He's not imprisoned because he's a, an evil man doing evil things. He's imprisoned because he's a godly man saying godly things in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You need to tell them this. And why do they need to know these things about Paul? Perhaps, and again, these things are not certain. Some of this is me digging into the text and saying, what possibly could be so important that the apostle would say three times in a few verses, tell them my circumstances, tell them what's going on. Perhaps it is um, because of how his imprisonment has been spun by these false teachers. No doubt, at least in part, the apostle has been in prison and by the spinning of these false teachers, he must surely have done something wrong, right? That's why I read to you from the book of Acts. What were the things that were said about him? He's a pest. He's causing dissension. He's speaking against the law. He's speaking against Moses. Remember, they did the same thing with Stephen in the book of Acts. And Stephen was doing no such thing. No such thing. But he was instructing them, Stephen was, and Paul would as well, that the law does play a significant part in, in showing you your need of a savior. But it is incapable, totally incapable, of redeeming a man or a woman. Oh, heretic, heretic. Imprison him. Bad man going against the, the, the major narrative here. So I believe that the saints needed to know this about Paul. I believe it, that they must have spun it somehow. He must surely be doing something wrong because only bad people and dangerous people go to prison and get arrested, right? Who would ever weaponize a judicatory to punish people? People don't do things like that, do they? Of course they do. We're watching it in the news right now weaponizing the judicial system. The messenger and his message are called into question by those seeking to discredit him. Why should they know? Because they have put their faith in the message that the apostle wrote, in the message that Epaphras had spoken to them. And here, my educated guess is that they are using his current circumstances to undermine what the apostle has done. And if he undermines, if they are able to undermine what he's done, then they undermine the faith of these believers. And what we see of the apostle is that he cares very deeply, very deeply enough that even though he's some 800 miles away as the crow flies, he doesn't just sit back and relax, but he engages in the battle because he's concerned for their souls. And this is what Satan does, to discredit the messenger and the message and to hurt the faith of those. Two, it would seem that the apostle wanting to shore up the saints wants them to know what they can expect if they are faithful to Christ as well. There is this thought that if I'm true to the Lord, I won't suffer. And that just isn't true, is it? 
The saints in Colossae need the example of a godly man, a faithful minister undergoing hardships for the sake of the gospel. They shouldn't be left thinking that struggles and suffering for Christ are an unusual thing. Rather, it is to be expected. And imagine you find this in other portions of scripture as well. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. And Paul to Timothy said this, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So here he's informing the saints. He would have them be informed, as it would appear, um, that things have not been relayed accurately to the church. Things are not being presented faithfully to the church. Rather, they are being spun. And so it's important that the saints would know exactly what was going on so that their faith wouldn't be undermined in any way. Why is he sending them? Because they need to know whom they can trust, secondly. And this answers the second question. Why does he give these glowing remarks regarding Tychicus and Onesimus? Because they need to know whom they can trust. The goal of the apostle is the edification of the saints in the Lycus Valley. They were false. There were false teachers undermining the gospel and no doubt undermining the Apostle Paul, Epaphras, and Timothy. How do you protect the saints? How do you keep them from following bad characters? <clears throat> Friends, the work of, minist- of ministry cannot be left to one individual. The Apostle is in prison. The saints need information, and they need even more than just information, because I imagine that the apostle could have just written a letter and paid a courier to just deliver it. Why is it so important that he puts it in the hands of Tychicus and Onesimus? More than the information, they need the input and ministry of faithful men. Paul lists these two men. Listen to Tychicus. And this is, this is an interesting Um, An interesting thought. He again says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Who is this Tychicus? Very briefly. And, And it's interesting that Paul doesn't give this history here. He talks about the character of Tychicus, not about the history. The history comes from other commentators and and flipping back and forth in the scriptures and pulling these things together. One commentator said this, Tychicus was one of Paul's intimate friends and highly valued envoys. He came from the province of Asia. He's a Gentile then. And he had accompanied Paul when at the close of the third missionary journey, The latter was returning from Greece through Macedonia and then across into Asia Minor and so to Jerusalem on a charitable mission. That is, on that trip, Tychicus had traveled in advance of Paul from Macedonia to Troas and had been waiting for the apostle in that city. And now, some four years later, having spent some time with Paul in Rome during Paul's first Roman imprisonment, 
Tychicus had been commissioned by the apostle to carry their destinies to their destination, not only the epistle of the Colossians, but also that of Philemon and the letter to the Ephesians. So Tychicus is a dear friend, an intimate friend of the Apostle Paul. They have history together. They have worked together. They have, have uh, had their paths run parallel as they're serving the Lord together. But it is not the history together that made him valuable to the Apostle. And notice this, because what does he say about Tychicus? He he gives this glowing endorsement about this man, calling him a beloved brother and faithful servant and a fellow bondservant in the Lord. He doesn't say, well, you know how we, remember we were going across the Mediterranean Sea on that boat? Remember we visited these cities together? None of that. Rather, he talks about his character, calling him first a beloved brother Not a biological brother. Paul is a Jew. Tychicus is a Gentile. But a spiritual brother in Christ. Furthermore, he is beloved of the Lord and also of the apostle. Paul knows him to be a genuine Christian man, a man whose life demonstrates this to be the case. He is a beloved brother. Secondly, he calls him a faithful servant or a faithful minister. Faithful means trusty. It's used of persons who show themselves faithful in the transactions of business, the execution of commands, or the discharge of official duties. Here, the apostle could count upon Tychicus to follow through upon the tasks that the apostle would give him to do. Who am I going to send to this little church over in Asia Minor that's going to be able to care for them and follow through on what I'm telling them? It's Tychicus. He does what he's been charged to do. And third, he calls him a fellow bondservant in the Lord. Like Paul, Tychicus served the Lord Jesus. They're not doing their own individual things, but together, side by side, they are serving Christ Jesus, not pursuing their own thoughts or agendas. Tychicus, like Epaphras, loved the Lord. He loves the Lord's people, and he can be entrusted Uh, trusted as he walks in the fear of the Lord so that Paul in prison has every confidence that Tychicus will follow through on what is necessary representing the facts of their situation faithfully and will be a blessing to the saints and to their faith you can trust this man it's as if this is what Paul is saying here's a man that I I trust and you can trust this man and what he tells you why is this important because there were no shortage of false teachers infiltrating the church. And Paul, who's in prison because of the faith, puts his imprimatur on Tychicus and says, you can trust this man. I know him. I know his character. I've watched him. And he's trustworthy. And then Paul also gives this second man, which this becomes even more interesting to me. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They know this man, Onesimus. Why send him? Why send him, say, over someone like Epaphras? Just a few verses later, we are told that he too is one of their number, and he actually planted the church in Colossae. They already know Epaphras. Why, why not send Epaphras instead of Onesimus? We read some weeks back the book of Philemon during the worship service. Onesimus was a slave in the household of Philemon. Philemon is from this this congregation. And Onesimus ran away from his master Philemon. 
Again, one commentator says this. During his absence from Colossae, speaking of Onesimus, uh, Onesimus somehow came into touch with Paul in his place of custody and through his ministry became a believer. He quickly proved himself a devoted attendant and friend to the apostle while he remained with him. But when Tychicus's journey to Asia provided a suitable opportunity, Paul sent Onesimus along with him so that he might return to Philemon on a new footing. It's as if Paul is saying, see here Onesimus, the servant of Philemon. Philemon, the master, and Onesimus, the slave who did wrong to his master. Everyone knows this man. Oh, that Onesimus. Right? That's what they're saying. That Onesimus? The one who did evil to Philemon? but who is now a new creature? Onesimus? That Onesimus? Our faithful and beloved brother, who is from you all, you know him, no doubt remember what he was, but he is no longer the man you once knew. He has been washed, he has been sanctified, he has been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no doubt in my mind that this is a benefit for Onesimus to have Paul say these glowing things about him, to give him this endorsement, to help him be received by the church, and also to be brought back into the good graces of Philemon. But I think it serves an even greater purpose. When Paul and his circumstances and the message that he has preached and people are saying, it's all wrong, and you understand why that would be such a temptation to believe. You know this as Protestants, don't you? When you talk to anyone from any other religion and they talk about their missions trips and they talk about their rosary beads, when they talk about their Hail Marys, when they talk about their, their, the going to the Mass and, and doing performing all of these things and, and they say, well, what do you do? And you just go, I just go to church and I sing praises. <laughs> well, you know, you're not doing anything much, are you? If you've, if you've ever gotten into a conversation like this, Protestantism... Biblical Christianity looks like it's a, oh, you don't have to do anything to be saved. And we go, amen. It's all of what Christ has done. It's a wonderful thing. So imagine, imagine what they would say about Paul. Oh, this is the guy who thinks you don't have to do anything and that justification is free and clear. It's a gift of God. Clearly, he's not telling you the truth because everyone knows you have to abide by these certain things if you really want to be a Christian. You can imagine how they would feel with false teachers preaching false gospels and thinking that Paul is washed up and it's no wonder and good riddance to you because you belong in prison, you heretic. And then he takes a guy like Onesimus who hears the gospel and he goes, I'm sending this guy to you, Onesimus. Onesimus, the one who was a bad slave? Yeah, who is now a new creature. I think that the apostle is sending Onesimus not just to help Onesimus out, but I think he's sending him so that the church can see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is truth and what the apostle preached was true and it brought about new life. I think that's why he's doing it. Because he's come under criticism. It's very hard to argue with a tree and its fruit. 
And Onesimus was the real deal. Onesimus tell us, how did this happen? Ah, it's a crazy providence. I came across this path of this prisoner, this Paul from Tarsus. He is a very nice man, very kind to me. And I told him I was running away from a wicked slave, and he started to tell me about this Jesus. And before you knew it, I was crying. I couldn't help myself. I was so convicted of my sin, and yet to see how gracious Jesus Christ was to this sinner, and I deserved these terrible things, and he would forgive me. Can you imagine a testimony like that coming back from Rome to a man who was known for being quite a, a sordid character, and now, and now, here the people at Colossae would marvel at the power of the gospel that Jesus Christ received sinners and he alone can deliver them from their sins. I would think that that's why he would send men like Tychicus and Onesimus. Which leads then to our final point, friends. Why send these men with this information? Again, verse 8, we read this. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Apparently, they needed encouragement. They needed encouragement. Sometimes life becomes so heavy and we become so discouraged. Our leaders are imprisoned. People are thinking we're crazy. We're ostracized from the community as not being good enough. The church is battling false sons in her pale who cast dispersions, no doubt, as they did on the apostle. We see sin all around us. We question the message of the gospel. Does it even really, truly work, Lord? We haven't seen anyone converted and seen the power of the Spirit of God at work in anyone's lives in recent days. They need their eyes lifted. And we need people to speak into our worlds and to remind us that the Lord is still in control, even though we suffer for being the Lord's people. Even though the world hates the gospel message, he still has and always will have a faithful remnant that he holds on to. He is still changing lives. And to show you that he is, I'm sending Onesimus. They will share everything about our circumstances we don't want you to quit. We don't want you to fall prey to the false teachers who cast dispersions on me because I'm in prison. I don't want you to think that the gospel I'm preaching is without power because it is. Look at Onesimus. And I don't want you to become discouraged when you suffer for holding to the truth. Stay the course. Stay the course. My friends, we learn from this, these very same lessons, not to become discouraged. My friends, your faith in Christ Jesus is not in vain. He's won. He has won. And we see his kingdom advancing even though through the clouds of the battlefield. We see he's winning. And so the message of the gospel is true. Christ is enough. Christ alone is enough. Hold to it. We may suffer because of this message and its truth, um, but that's to be worn as a, as a badge of honor. 
right? Not an, a badge of shame. And there are yet faithful servants and examples to be followed throughout the earth. The Lord has his people and they are serving him faithfully and you are to look at them and be encouraged and follow those godly examples as they follow Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for this word and for your grace to us. And we pray that you would strengthen and encourage your people. Help us not to be discouraged in these days. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for his resurrection. And that he is so much more mighty than we ever give him credit for. But we know, Lord, that we don't need to give him credit for him to be mighty. But it helps us to recognize that he is mighty. Would you grant us your peace and your nearness in these times? Help us not to grow weary. Help us, Lord, to hold fast to the truth of the gospel and not to be shaken from our foundations as we prayed earlier for our brothers and sisters in India and Pakistan and throughout the earth. Bless your saints, we pray this day. And I ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.